Hey, everybody. Um, I just want to talk about a serious thing before the podcast starts. Um, the great American writer, director, John Singleton, died last week. Um, Dave and I were lucky enough to work with and, and get to know John pretty well um, over the past few years. But before that, I knew him through his work. Boys in the Hood changed me in the way the best art does. I saw it many days in a row. I showed it to my kids the moment they were old enough to see it. Um, it uh, its influence, uh, the characters that John created, Furious Styles, uh, is one of the great American movie fathers. And the movie showed that John, at a very young age, understood more about family, more about love, more about race in America, more about that which is fair, that which is unfair, that which can be changed, that which can't be changed, about fate, about how we are obligated to press on despite fate um, than almost anybody. And he was a hero before I knew him, and knowing him only reinforced it. I never met a director who was more prepared when he came in to direct Billions. His level of preparation, the amount of deep thought he put into it, the quality of the questions that he asked us, his infectious, ebullient manner. Um, all these things remained incredibly inspiring to me, incredibly elevating to me. Um, I feel fortunate that I did tell him all this. Not when he was sick, not when he was fucked up. I told him in life. So I feel like uh, I put it out there. He, uh, We weren't close friends because... Um, we worked together for a short burst, but we were working, we, but we were really in touch and um, knew our affection for one another. And uh, David, John, and I had just embarked on a project together. He was supposed to spend, um, I haven't said this anywhere, but the week that he died was supposed to be, or the week that he went into the hospital, he was supposed to be here with Dave and me working for three days on a project. And... Um, Obviously, he couldn't come because uh, he had this stroke. Uh, I miss John already. I'm sad. I'm sad for the world even more than I'm sad personally because what we lost is irreplaceable. And what it is is one of the great American filmmakers to ever live. So, uh, John Singleton, goodbye. Uh, it was an honor to know you. And uh, everybody, go watch a John Singleton movie today. Go watch Boys in the Hood. Go watch it with your family and think about it for a while. All right, thanks everyone. The podcast will start now. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a big deal to me to have Jocko Willink here. Uh, Jocko has one of those popular podcasts in the country. He's a best-selling author. He's also an American hero, uh, Navy SEAL, and um, is, uh, by the time this airs, people will know you were on Billions. So, Interesting. Uh, you also came in and um, are in episode eight of our show, and, and you killed it. Oh, before we, I'll show you. I'm going to show you the scene if you want to see like the <laughs> opening. Right and so, Jock and Willink, thank you for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I read, uh, and you're also you're a children's book author. So not only have you written these these books that are for um, really anyone, any adult to sort of maximize who they are, but you've written these children's books. And yesterday we were texting or the day before, and you asked me if I'd read one of them, Mikey and the Dragon, Mikey and the Dragons. 
And uh, I said, no, but I will before I see you. So, of course, I have because you and I are going to keep our word to one another. And, uh, and it, I wish that those books would have been around when my, uh, my kids, particularly my daughter, was, was young. It's great that you write those things. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's what I think. I wish I had those books when I was young because I think every kid needs to read those books. And it's just really helpful to all the kids that do read them. I get the most incredible messages and I get handwritten letters from little kids, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, six years old, saying I did my first pull up saying I learned my times tables. I'm not afraid of the dark anymore. And that's, that's worth it. But of course the the, the difference it, that you're making isn't in the eight-year-old. It's in when that eight-year-old becomes a 28-year-old. For sure. Right? Because it's, it, it's changing the way we look at, at bullies and the way we look at the bullied and the way we look at how we ought to define ourselves and that we don't have to be defined by anybody but ourselves through our actions. And teaching that, I think, to eight-year-olds is a really valuable thing to do. And I'm sure you must be aware that it's about like making a bigger change than in only the, the one, the kid as a kid. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. hundred percent. So, all right, man, here's, here's where I want to start. I listened to, uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. As you know, my creative partner, David Levine, is a huge Jocko guy and he gives your books out to everybody and, and talks about, uh, he lives a, a life that's, you know, before interacting with your work, that is very much in, in keeping with it. Um, I live a life that has a lot more pizza involved in it. <laughs> but um, uh, I was listening to this podcast that, that you did, I think it's your most recent one, um, about evalu- the way that the Navy and the Marines evaluate people. And it may be my favorite podcast of the year so far by anybody. Yeah. How, but, but here's the question. Can you define what it means to you to be squared away? And then can you tell me how many actually squared away people have you ever met in your life? Like, what do they have in common? The people who you would say, that guy's squared away. Yeah, that, that was, and I just, you're right, that is my most recent podcast, number 174. And I knew going into it, I said, I said to my uh, co-host on the podcast, Echo Charles, I said, this one's going to probably hit hit some people because it hit me as I was doing it. And it's something that I grew up with and it had, had this small impact on me th- as I grew up, you know, this idea that, hey, what do you, wh- where are you really at? How do you really evaluate yourself? And so, and that's actually what I, what I said I was going to do is once I got done with doing that podcast, at the end of the podcast, I said, I am actually going to write a full evaluation for everyone and explain what I think makes a person squared away. And so I'm going to do that. I don't think I can do it in the, in the one minute sitting here thinking about it. I think it's something I really have to put some time into and, I, and I've already started. But, you know, I, I think one of the key things is that is that a person should do what they know they're supposed to do. <laughs> and that's really simple to say, and it's really hard to do. But just about everybody knows what they should do. They also know what they shouldn't do. And if, and if people went through their lives doing those things, they, their lives would be in a much better place. And that's just a fact. And everyone knows that. I know it. Do I always adhere to it? No. Do I wish I did? Yes. Do I do better than some people? Yes. In some areas, for sure. In other areas, not, not really. So <clears throat> the idea of this evaluation is looking at yourself every day and saying, where did I fall short? And what could I do better tomorrow? 
And again, I think that that podcast it had a big it had an impact on me and, and the response that it's created has been pretty pretty phenomenal. But but even when you say uh, do what you should do, I listen to that podcast really closely. Doing what you're supposed to do that gets you to a three point on a five zero scale. Just doing what you know you should do that gets you to around a three zero, right? So. So, uh, because part of what you said, and this is why, I, I, maybe we can tease it out here and you can actually make some distinctions for yourself for later, which is, uh, w- when, you, when you say, um, on the pod, you talk about how most of us don't actually think enough about what the standard ought to be, and then not just the, the sort of mediocre standard, but what's the highest standard? Well, yeah, and I, I actually would disagree with you a little bit. I would disagree with you when I when I would say if you do, then let's what, fight. Let's you, just fucking fight. Right dude. on. Let's go. Right on. I'm ready. If you were to do what you were supposed to do, uh-huh. what you were supposed to do, I think even you know that you don't do what you're supposed to do. You and we and all of us, many of us, we do what we know we can get away with. A lot of times we do the bare minimum. Hey, I know I can get away with this. I know, you know what? Like you, yeah, you, you like pizza. You're, I, I, you know, I can have another slice. This slice is not going to kill me, so I can get away with it. But you know, you're not supposed to be eating that slice. You know it. Oh yeah, of course I do. <laughs> I mean, I know there's a time I can't. I, there's a time you should actually. There's right. a time that you should right. in life. Right. Uh, but no, you talk about the donuts in 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 your book. Um, what's the name of that? But the discipline. Discipline equals freedom. I mean, you talk about the donut Field really manual. well. What's that? Field manual. Yes. The field manual, you really talk about the, the idea yeah. of that the donut's poison. And I love that, yeah. that language. What about the language that your will is stronger than the will of a donut? And it's amazing that we get beat. Your will will get beaten by a donut. Your will as a human being will get beaten by a donut. Well, yeah, That's but ridiculous. It's, and it happens. It's absurd. And it happens to most Americans, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Yeah. Well, but part of that is like if you – and I know you've read a lot of the shit that I have. Like you read a guy like Jonathan Haidt on um, the psychology of that stuff and he talks about that will – why will is – why it's so difficult for your will to to win a lot of the time because you have to you have to train it, right, Jocko? You, it's not – to me, I mean I know you say tomorrow you can just – or today, right now, you can do it. But it does turn out that um, it seems for most people, but maybe you think this is bullshit and I want to know why, that – if you, you know, exercise your will all day long, by the end of the day, I mean, he talks about this in both books I've read of his, by four or five o'clock in the day, you're, you've kind of used up sheer will. So you have to find other ways to convince yourself. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've gone against this whole thing before. I've called out the scientists that did this study and told them that they were wrong. And, and I'll stand by that statement right now. Scientists that did that study, you're wrong. I'll tell you right now, Will begets will. And, and when you impose discipline in your life, it doesn't get weaker. It gets stronger. And, and you know this, and I'll prove it to you right now. If you wake up in the morning and you go for – you exercise, you do something, you come back, you feel good, and there's a donut versus a, a piece of beef jerky. If you already worked out today and you're feeling good and you got up and you did some writing, got some work done, and you're kind of on the path, you don't want that donut. You feel good, and then you power through. You get to lunch. You do another quick workout or something. Boom! You 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 get stronger. You your will gets stronger as you reinforce it with good decisions. So, but what happens? What's the opposite? You went out drinking last night. Yeah. You slept in in the morning. You roll into the office. You haven't. You're a little bit late. There's a donut sitting on a free donut, right, sitting on the tray as you walk through, and and you look at that thing, 
and instinctively you just want to eat that thing and you do. So I disagree with the fact that, or, or with the statements that your, your will diminishes as you, as you utilize it. I think your will gets stronger as you utilize it. Over and the I long see term, that, I, see I see that. that. I see it on the long term and the short term. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way, but uh, which is why I love hearing you talk and talking to you. Like um, when you start walking a lot, if you're in New York and you decide, you know what, uh, any, any trip shorter than 30 or 40 blocks, I'm walking. I'm not getting on the subway and I'm not taking a cab. I'm walking. When I, for me, when I start doing that in the morning, if in the morning I start by walking, I don't want to let myself down in the middle of the day. And then that's it. I'm committed. And then suddenly I look down and I've got 18,000 steps for the day. I've walked seven miles or eight miles. And that does happen because I've started. And if I don't start in the morning, it's, it's actually harder. So that's true in that area. I do think that the science of how food gets people is different. I and mean, you just think it's bullshit. Lies. It's just lies. Yeah, I think it's just lies. So, but what do you think it is that set you up to be able to to prosecute your will against this shit when so many of us can't? I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do. I don't think I'm anything, you know, extraordinary or special. I'm just a normal person, and I think I just make the decision when the time comes that I'm going to do as much as I can what I believe to be the right thing to do at the time, and and that's why I think there's when this evaluation when I put together this evaluation. And you can actually look and see what your standard is and what the highest standard is and see where you fall short every day. Because let's face it, none of us are living up to our capability. We, we can all do a lot more. So I just want to try and make that happen. But the people you've met who were squared away, if you could just pick a couple of them. And it could be Hackworth, who I don't think you – did you ever meet Hackworth? I no? never met Hackworth. I started the book last me. night. I got oh, it. Really? I started reading it. Yeah, really? about, I only got like 75 pages in because it's 800 pages. Yeah. Um, but I immediately understood why you love them. Yeah. I couldn't find the book's not available electronically. It's not available audio. I had to send. I finally. It was not easy to get that book about face, which yeah. is the, the the singular book for you, right? It is the. It is the definitely. It's the top. It's a top book for me for sure. There's other books there, but that's the. What that's was the it about book. him that made him? Let's for a second, because maybe that'll give us a window into what it means to be squared away. What is it about Hackworth that makes you think? Okay, that's. That's if I'm going to emulate somebody, that's who I'm going to emulate. Just you, ha- you have to read the book. You know, this is a guy that was in the army. He joined at a really young age. He took care of his men. He accomplished the mission. He played the game when he had to play the game. But at the end, you know, at the, at the end, and, and this is, you know, some things that he's the first guy. He's the first senior military guy that came out in Vietnam and said, if we don't change the way we're fighting, we're not going to win. And they drummed him out of the army in a matter of a couple months. And he was kind of blacklisted in the military. So, so even when I was in the SEAL teams in, in the nineties, and I started talking about Hackworth, if I mentioned that to senior officers, they didn't like him. And, and definitely the army didn't like him, but that's come around. That's actually changed now. And, and I was at, I was at West Point and I was talking to some of their senior leaders up there and they're, they're totally on board with Hackworth. And they understand that what he was pushing against was people that were yes, men to the point of where it's a negative impact on the mission. Ancestry, Ancestry DNA, amazing, fascinating stuff. It, it, it really is. The, the thought that you can take a test at home and uh, learn so much. Uh, Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographical detail and clear-cut historical insights. Like, I would love to know. Like, I know my family's from... I know what I've been told, really, which is that my family's mostly from Russia, somebody from Canada, 
but man, would I like to know what they were, the world they were living in and, and how it connects to who I am now. You know, I'd love to be able to trace my ancestors' journey over time, following how and why they moved from place to place. And, you know, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree. So ancestors become more than just a name. Ancestry DNAs combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about all the people that shaped you, how they made a living, what they excelled in, and it's so easy to get started. I mean, I'm gonna sign up today to do this because uh, I, I, my, my grandparents are all gone um, and uh, there are lots of things I didn't ask them about their grandparents and their grandparents' grandparents and I would love to learn it all. And if, if you wanna learn it all, I will say uh, for a limited time, now through May 13th, you can go to Ancestry.com to get your Ancestry DNA kit for $59. That's Ancestry.com for $59, Ancestry.com. So go to Ancestry.com slash moment today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash moment for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit, Ancestry.com slash moment. Okay, this is a question I was building to, so but I'm going to get to it here. I, my whole life, have had a, a really hard time with authority, with following orders. I, I was really determined to build a life. So uh, other than the food area in my life, I've been able to be in control. No, because when you talk about the 5-0 stuff, like I understand the standard in every other area. Um, but it's all come from my own sense of morality and my own sense of right and wrong, which was... Uh, something that I worked hard at developing for my whole life. Uh, I, even from a young age, was like, just because someone's in a position of authority, I'm telling you from eight years old, even if someone's in a position of authority, that doesn't mean I have to consider them an authority. And it got me in a lot of trouble when I was young. But I was determined to figure out what it meant to live the right way, the way that I saw the world, how to be a giving person, how to do all of that shit the right way. But but when I would see people in an institution in a position of authority that I felt like were there for selfish reasons or were there because it was a job to do, or I would immediately devalue the whole of the institution and decide it wasn't worth it for me and go my own fucking way. And when you talk about the yes men, which I see everywhere in, in life and everywhere in our, in, our, in our country, people who are uh, loyal to just like the idea of like wanting to save their own asses. How do you determine? How do you decide, someone like you, I'm gonna go into a system with a rigid chain of command. I'm gonna obey that chain of command. And how do you, this is a big question, right? You take as long as you want to answer it. And how do I know what's a good order? And you know, that for me is, is in my life outside of a, a military strict chain of command like that, something that I've really chafed against and I think to good end. So can you talk about that a little bit for people like me who don't understand it? Yeah, I would, I, I, you know, obviously didn't know you when you were eight years old or 13 years old or 15 years old. I will put my rebellious and anti-authoritarian streak up against yours any day of the week. When I joined the Navy, which I did without telling my parents, I just went out and did it. And I came home and, and told my dad, hey, I just joined the Navy. And my dad says, you're going to hate it. 
And I said, why do you think I'm going to hate it? And he said, because you don't like listening to anyone else. You don't like people telling what to do and you hate authority. And so that's what I went in with. I went in with that type of attitude. And, and quite frankly, that was the absolute truth. And I still don't like people telling me what to do. And the first thing I did, this is one of the, one of the best things that happened to me. So I was a young radio man in a SEAL platoon. And I didn't want my platoon chief or my platoon commander to tell me what to do. So you know what I did to combat that? I got ahead of them. And I would prepare everything and I would be more squared away than they didn't have to come up to me and say, hey, get the radios ready. I'd look at them and say the radios were already ready. Right. So that was sort of the, the path that I took. And I think that actually uh, to be a good leader and to be really a good follower, you need to have rebellious streak in you. And I never wanted people to work for me to be yes men and just do what I told them to do. And, and I never wanted to work for people that were just going to bark orders at me. And, and no one likes that. And so what you have in the military is you have – when people are good leaders, you have very open communications up and down the chain of command. The, the amount of times that I barked an order at one of my subordinates is zero. It's zero. You know, I never – and, you know, Leif, who I wrote Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership with, we, we would set – we'll be working with a company because we, we have a leadership consulting company. And, of course, everyone thinks I'm this, I'm this psycho military guy that's going to yell at everyone. And, and Leif will ask the question to the group. You know, there will be 100 people in there. He'll say, how many, how many times do you guys think Jocko yelled at me? And, and the answer is zero, never, never yelled at him. And I always looked at it as, as a leader, if I have to yell at you, then I've made a mistake. I, I haven't led you correctly. So I think when you're, when you're in these positions, you're doing what you think is right for sure. Now there is a, what this, that's almost the easy part of this. That's almost the easy part of this because it gets harder because if you get told to do something that you believe is wrong, well, then you have to look at it and say, okay, well, First of all, have I developed a good enough relationship up the chain of command so that my boss will actually listen to me? Because if I haven't developed, if I haven't put the work in to develop a good relationship so that when my, so my boss respects my opinion, well, then I've made some mistakes down the line or, or previously that are going to cost me right now. So what I have to do is when my boss tells me something little to do that I disagree with, you know what I do? Do it. I do it. When my boss tells me something else, maybe it's not the best way to do it, but you know what? It's close enough. And he, he wants me to get it done. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it well. I'm going to do it better than anybody else. I'm going to give him what he wants. And I'm going to do that. That's how I'm going to build a relationship with my boss. Eventually, guess what? My boss comes to me and tells me to do something that is going to get someone hurt. That's going to get someone killed. That's, that's going to hurt our strategy. Now when I say, hey, boss, I'm looking at what you want me to get done here. I'm thinking maybe... Actually, could you explain to me why you want it done this way? Because right now, I don't. I want to fully understand what you want because I'm not sure that I, I'm seeing what I need to see to, to make this happen, right? So I'm not even being combative. Even in that statement, I'm not even being combative. I'm playing the game. And, you know, my bosses up and down the chain of command or, or up the chain of command, my bosses, this, this sounds like such an arrogant thing to say. My bosses always gave me what I wanted. They always did what I wanted to do. They, they always supported me. And, and why is that? I worked hard. I did the things that they needed me to get done. They knew I wasn't, they knew that I was not a guy that just objected out of objecting. They knew that I, my ego wasn't involved. I, if they, their plan was good and I thought I had a better plan, that, that, that my ego didn't get hold of me and make me stick to my guns or something. I'd say, oh, you know what, boss? That sounds good. We'll do it. It's close enough. And so eventually when you have to protest something, or you disagree with something, when you raise your hand, people listen to you. And so that's the way, that's the way I went through my military career. And is that what you, tra- you train the people 
under you to do as well with you. You would teach that. To the best of my ability, I would teach people to do that all the time. Do you think the military is actually because of the chain of command stuff and that orders are not to be trifled with better set up for somebody to manage it that way than most sort of corporate cultures where everybody's pretty much insecure all the time and it's harder because the ego, you know, the ego of a corporate vice president and the way that if they're challenged, they're so worried about what everyone else is going to think can make them even more rigid, it seems to me, than a colonel. Well, I'll tell you, no, it's it's all the same. I mean, leaders are leaders. I work with companies all the time now of every size, yeah. you know, billion dollar companies. They've got more money than they know what to do with. And you still will have an insecure vice president that doesn't want to say he doesn't right, want to admit I, that yes. he made the, made the same made the wrong decision, doesn't want to say he's got a bad plan, so he'll just have people go and execute it and get mad and blame other people. You can ha- easily have a colonel that comes up with a bad plan that doesn't want to admit that he's wrong, doesn't want to admit that he made a bad assessment, and now he's got his troops moving in the wrong direction. And that's even worse because, of, co- of course, then you can get Death, people that can yeah. die. But you know, each one of those situations is bad in their own way because when you've got a corporation that's going in the wrong direction, well, now you might not be killing people, but you're laying people off and people can't pay their mortgage and feed their kids. So there's a lot of stress under both those scenarios. So in both those situations, what is it? And you already said it, it's your ego. And if your ego's out of control and you can't admit that you're wrong or admit that someone below you in the chain of command has a good point or maybe even has a better plan than you, if you can't do that, you're not going to be a good leader. One of my favorite things in the two books you wrote with, with Leaf, I've read both those books, is over and over it seems to me bosses come to you and are, are like, Jocko, help me get these fucking people in line. And then you're like, you're, no, 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 we got to get you in line. So, yeah. you know, I mean, you don't say it harsh to them like that, I guess, all the time. But it seems like the bosses keep thinking, well, I got to get tougher. Yeah. But they misunderstand. I always think they have a... A fundamental misunderstanding about what actually being tough is. Yeah, well, it's it's the, that, that was actually a, an actual statement when I first started doing consulting, and and a guy came to me. Or we were we were just about to start working, and he says, "I can't wait until you get here and you whip my people into shape." And and I said to him, "Hey, <laughs> if you want me to whip people, you need to find someone else to come and help you." I said, because whipping people into shape doesn't get them into shape. All it does, it, you, you can get someone through pure dictatorial mannerisms. Sure, you can get someone to do what you want them to do for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, maybe for a week, maybe for two weeks. But when you're not there to crack the whip, guess what? They're, they're going back to their old ways and they're not functioning the way they're supposed to be. So it doesn't work. You have to actually lead. And that's the challenging thing. Do you think you can turn most of these people into leaders? You can turn a lot of people into leaders. You can improve their leadership skills and their leadership capability. There's one type of person that you cannot help. Who's that? And that's the person that's ego is so big and they're so arrogant that they don't think they're going to need, they don't think they need help. It's everyone else's fault. They're doing everything right. They are a genius and no one's listening to them. They, no one else sees the genius in, in my decision making. And that's problematic. Because that's like, that's like false ego actually, right? That's not real. That's not really confidence or you think it's actual confidence? I, I see people that have both, that have both. And they're, they're, they're equally bad, right? If I'm just being arrogant because so, I'm so insecure that I overplay my, my confidence and so I won't listen to people, that's bad. If I'm truly arrogant and overconfident because I actually believe that I'm as good as I think I am, that's, they're both equally bad and they both need the same solution. They need humility. Well, this is the great thing about 
extreme ownership to me or what I got out of it was the idea that in, ter- in making our show, just the very direct application of it is that all of it, if you're the leader, is ultimately your fault. I mean, you tell the story about this friendly fire incident that happened and how it would have been very easy to blame a bunch of people. And in fact, those people may have done the wrong thing, but that ultimately you just took it on on yourself. And when Dave and I read Extreme Ownership, we both had this idea, this idea that like, well, every single thing that happens on the show ultimately is our responsibility. And if we want to, we enjoy the credit of like making one of the best shows on television. So we have to accept the blame to ourselves and the responsibility that anything that's not working is, is on us. But it, it, um, the instinct to get angry when people fuck up is very difficult to manage when there's, and look, in your books, you say you don't know stress compared to the stress of battle. And that's true, right? But within our own experience, we feel what we think is stress. How did you get better at or get good at subsuming your emotion, not reacting out of a sense of like peak at first to be able to dispassionately evaluate and solve? Like what, how did you actually learn to do that? I, I learned by watching bad leaders lose their temper, yell and scream, act like idiots, and see my own personal reaction as a young enlisted SEAL, the reaction of the other young enlisted SEALs, the reaction of people above them in the chain of command. And I realized that if you lose, losing your temper is a weakness, being super hyper emotional is a weakness. And again, this is why we wrote the dichotomy of leadership, because I'm not sitting here saying that you don't show any emotions. And well, you've listened to my podcast, the podcast can get very emotional at times. And that's the way it is. So but but if you if you lose your temper, if you can't control your emotions, how can you control what's happening on the battlefield? How can you control the the maneuvering of the elements? How can you control anything if you can't control your own emotions? So I saw that. I saw it as a major weakness in the leaders, some of the leaders that I worked for or some of the leaders that I observed. And when I saw that, I just realized I'm not going to be that type of person. Have you always been somebody who could make, uh, were analytic in the way where you could look at the way something was? And then actually kind of transform yourself quickly. Has that just come naturally to you, man? I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure. And, you know, I always, I, was, I had a couple guys on my podcast. Charlie Plum, who was a Vietnam fighter pilot, shot down, spent six, six years in the Hanoi Hilton. And, and, I, and he was on with the same time with another guy named Jim Kunkel, who was shot down over France in World War II in a, in a P-38 Lightning. And, and these guys are talking, and I'm basically just sitting back listening. And, and actually, both of them listened to my podcast, and it was really cool. It was yeah. great. And then they kind of threw out some statement along the lines of, you know, they grouped me in with them as, you know, this is what we – you know what it's like when we are in these situations and we try and maintain the standard as uh, warriors, Right. And, and I had to just stop them and say, listen, guys, I am not even close to what you guys are. And, and the reason I always have to remind other people that is because if you're looking at me right now, you think, oh, this guy's pretty squared away. But I was a knucklehead. You know, I joined the Navy. I was an idiot. I was young. I, I, was, I was an 18-year-old kid. And when you're an 18-year-old kid, a 19-year-old kid, a 20-year-old kid, a 24-year-old kid, 
you don't, you're not, you don't haven't, haven't got things figured out yet. So to answer your question, you are one of those guys, you've won those awards, you sacrificed in battle. You did do all that shit, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that doesn't put me on a pedestal at all. That definitely doesn't make me a hero to the level of Jim Kunkel. You, you know, it just, it just doesn't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that at all. But you're and, saying to answer my question, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, to answer your question, I, as I was coming up in the SEAL teams, I definitely observed the leaders above me in the chain of command and analyzed, and it really, it, I've told this story a thousand times, but it really boiled down. I had one SEAL platoon where we had a mutiny in the SEAL platoon, and I was a young SEAL, and we had a bad SEAL leader, a bad platoon commander, uh, us young guys rebelled against him completely, went to our commanding officer and said, we don't want to work for this guy. So this is all the thing. This is, you know, and by the way, you know what the punishment for mutiny is in the military? Yeah. What is it? Well, death. It's death. Death is it's the death. punishment. Yeah. And you know, I'm dramatizing this somewhat, but that's what really what no, we I'm, actually did that. We actually went, and this was in the 90s. It was, there was no war going on. Right. There was no I wasn't zero, a battlefield <laughs> mutiny. There wasn't, there was zero threat of actually us yes. getting, getting the death penalty. But it's, it's what happened. We went to our commanding officer and said, look, we don't want to work for this guy. We don't like him. He's not a good leader. And then the commanding officer said, you guys shut up. We don't accept mutinies here. Get out of here. And then, and that, that guy was a great commanding officer. And a couple days later, like four days later, he fired the guy. But it wasn't based on us, allegedly. You know what I mean? He yes. didn't want a mutiny, but he saw the leader as weak and got rid of him. And then that weak leader got replaced with this amazing leader. This amazing leader that came in that was super experienced, had combat experience, was a tactical genius, was just an incredible guy, athlete, shooter. Everything he did was great. And yet, with all that experience and all that knowledge, he was the most humble guy. And he looked at us and said, how do you guys want to do it? And, and where do you guys think we should go for this mission? How do you think we should execute this? And it was amazing how all of us young enlisted guys, all we wanted to do was make that guy look good and not disappoint him. Whereas the other guy who had barked orders at us and said, my way or the highway and every plan had to be his way, we rejected that guy outright. And so that was sort of the first thing that made me look at look at leadership. And it was such a great stark contrast that uh, who knows if I would have been able to see the subtleties later on, but seeing that stark contrast and really the stark contrast boiled down to one thing. One guy was arrogant and the other guy was humble. And that's what I noticed. And that's the guy that I tried to emulate was the guy that was humble. So it seems to me though, you were also, you show up in a place very confidently. So it's a combination, right? Of confidence and humility. Like people always fake the word humility. I, I, one of my, the things I hate is when someone wins an award and they say they're humbled mm -hmm. because they're, they're not really, they're, they're using humble to mean proud of themselves. Yeah. They don't really mean humbled, yeah. but you're talking about service, right? You're talking about, well, this, cause you're confident mm -hmm. in your capability. It seems to me, cause talk a little bit more about what you mean, because you are you're a confident of your capability, Jocko. For sure. You're not a wallflower. You're not shy. You're confident. So can you talk about how you can be both confident and humble at the same time? Yeah, and, and this is why – these are like softball questions, but the, this is why I wrote the next book with Leif, which is called The Dichotomy of Leadership. Yeah. Because all these attributes, all of them, if you take them too far in one direction – they become a negative. So if you have someone that's confident, good, great to be confident. If you take that too far, now you're overconfident. Now you're not listening to anyone. Now you're an egomaniac and you're going to lose. If you go too far in the other direction, I'm not confident. I lack confident confidence. And all of a sudden I can't even 
I can't even put out word or, or give instructions with any level of authority. Well, now I'm also not a good leader. So yes, you're right. You have to balance these things. The big difference is when I say, when I say, Hey, look, I could be wrong. Yes. I'm not just saying that. I actually know that I could be wrong about this. When, when I say, Hey, Brian, you're a junior guy in a SEAL platoon. And I say, Hey, Brian, what do you think of this plan? I'm actually looking for your input. I actually think that you might have a better idea than me. I actually think that you might, even if you don't have a better idea, you might see some holes in my plan that we should adjust. I'm not just saying it out of false humility. I actually am open-minded and I want to hear what your ideas are. And the, and, I, and the very few times, I'm telling you, if I ever tell you, if I ever say, listen, man, I know we should go this way 100%. You should listen to what I'm saying because I say that so rarely, so rarely that it is correct. It is correct. And I, I mean, I'd say it so rarely. It's, it's probably once a year. I'll say, listen, this is hundred percent what you should do right here, right now. And if I say that to you, you should listen to me because you're very rarely going to hear, hear it from me. So yes, the answer is, do you have to be confident? Absolutely. Should you walk in giving a plan that you don't really believe in? No. If you don't believe in the plan, you need to dig into the plan and, and figure out where the holes are that are that are making you not believe in it. And then once you fill those holes and now you believe in it, now you can say it with confidence. And when you say it with confidence, you still leave enough room with your with your brain to allow other ideas to come in and and counter what you're saying. What Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying to go I'm trying to get one notch deeper at this though, which is often leaders, even leaders who've accomplished things, they feel a kind of, we feel a kind of pressure to keep it going, to get to the next level. And that kind of pressure can, in, in bad leaders or in leaders who aren't quite working at their, at their best, and especially people who've like relied on themselves and so that's why they've been successful. It it's the the confidence to sort of say like I can do this impossible thing, we can, which is necessary. Totally necessary. It fights against the it's very scary to say the best the best movie director I we, Dave and I ever worked with Steven Soderbergh, he's a legend for a reason and we would stand on set with him and watch him sometimes say like I don't have an answer and it was an incredible lesson to us taught us to be able to do that. But why, what is so scary about saying, do you think when you've talked to leaders, these bosses who, about just admitting, I don't know right now. I know you're all looking at me. I don't have the answer. Well, there's, let's there's, find it together. There's two things. Number one is your own personal ego, because now you have to admit that you don't know something. And, and so that's, that's a huge part of it, but you can overcome that. The next part that you have to overcome is as a leader, you feel that everyone else is looking at you and expecting that you have all the answers and you're supposed yes. to know everything. That's what you feel. Now, the true answer is when you're looking up the chain of command at someone and they've answered 90% of the questions, 98% of the questions, and they've, they've got the good answers and you followed them and you've listened. When they say, look, I'm not sure what the answer is, that you don't lose respect for it. I them. agree with this. You yes. actually say, okay, the boss needs some help here. The boss doesn't quite see this. I need to step up my game right now. We need to think about what we're doing. We need to find out a solution. And I always tell this to the young junior officers that are coming into the military or coming in to take over SEAL platoon. 
they think they're supposed to know everything. No one in that SEAL platoon thinks they know anything. <laughs> the expectations are very, very low, but the expectations they put on themselves are very, very high. So when it comes time to plan a mission, they think, okay, I've come up with a plan. And they, they try and impose this plan on their subordinates. And their subordinates look at them and go, you don't need, they're, they're looking at, and they're thinking to themselves, how is this person that just showed up at the SEAL team eight months ago going to plan this mission? I've been here for 14 years. I've done this mission, not just in training, but I've done it the real thing 80 times. And this guy's trying to impose a plan on me. This guy's ignorant. Whereas, so, so, that, so the person that comes across like I know everything yes. looks ignorant. Whereas the guy that comes out and says, hey guys, you know, I've only been here for eight months. I know this is the first time I'm doing this mission. I, I definitely want to see and, and evaluate the plan that we use. But as you know, I haven't done this before. I know you guys have. Can you guys help guide me through what a good plan would be? What, what's, the, what's the attitude of the men towards that person? They look and go, oh, wow, this guy's humble. He's, he's open-minded and he's going to listen to us. And let's go. Oh, I love talking about the New Yorker. Why? There's nothing easier than doing an ad for a product you use and kind of obsess over. And that's how I am about the New Yorker. First of all, just this week, my pal Rachel Syme, who's one of the great young writers, has an incredible piece about Billions' Maggie Siff in the New Yorker. And I loved reading that, and I loved that this incredible writer was taking a look at, um, well, at a heck of a TV show and a, a character in it and, a, and an actor in it and com, you know, doing what The New Yorker does so well, giving it context, giving it perspective. And the truth is The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. I mean, they publish the best writers. They hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. You have people like Ronan Farrow. You have people like Helen Rosner, incredible writers. I mean, people who I would love to have dinner with, who I would love to talk to. And in The New Yorker, I get to read what they've been thinking about and what they've been working on. And I get to go online and access the archives. And I can read, you know, incredible pieces by people who've been writing for them forever. Roger Angel or um, another one of my absolute favorite writers. John McPhee, and um, The New Yorker is, uh, look, there's a reason it's the gold standard. So get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks, plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. So do it. The New Yorker, now. Okay, so now we're going to switch from the softballs to the hardballs, the fastball questions, because... You know, the guy you just described, and take politics out of it, is Barack Obama. And the other guy is Donald Trump. The guy who's going, the guy who's going, what should we do, is the way Barack Obama led all the time. Donald Trump, though, if you, when you describe the leader who's the arrogant, bullish, I know everything leader, you're literally describing everything we see, forgetting what their policies are, right? And yet I think... Um, Many of the people who voted for Trump look at him and think that's, those are the characteristics I want in a leader. I want a boss. I want someone to tell me what to do. This is why people like me feel like there's this movement towards authoritarianism because that's what that looks like to me. Like the exact opposite of what you describe as what you want in a leader. So where am I wrong? Well, that's, that's an interesting, what's what I find interesting, I think I find this interesting from a political perspective, right? Yeah. So 
you, me, we don't really like authority, right? I mean, we don't like being told what to do, right? And when we look at, like, when you say authoritarian government, you know, I think North Korea, it's horrifying. It's an awful... Me too. It's an awful Me too. That's thing, what I think right? too. And yet... And this is this is one of those things as you as you try and figure this stuff out you you can't you can't That's because right. the deal is the most punk rock way to go is you know what I don't want to have any authority over me I don't want the government to be running my life that's what I don't want and so if you look at that from a from a political on the political spectrum, where does that put you? Yeah, of course, libertarian. I've got, I understand you on that. The libertarian That's why I'm spectrum. taking the. Whereas when you say, "Okay, well, I want the government to control me," who says that? No, no one says that. It's like crazy talk, right? Right. And so I think you know, to, again, to take the political things out of it. Well, well I'm talking I, about leadership stuff. I'm I, yeah. here's what I'm talking about, right? When people, for, for me, the thing I chafe against the most, I I obviously don't like the policies, right? But that's my political views. They're probably different in certain ways than yours, though I bet you there's way more commonality in the way we want the average American to be living and taken care of. I bet you you and I would agree on 92% of it, right? It's really like the 8 to 10% of it that um, I might think uh, there's a way the government could do certain things, and you might think, well, it'd be better if people worked it out. But when we're talking about leadership style, and we're talking about a guy at the microphone is supposed to be lifting us up, we're supposed to be giving us freedom, and all he's doing is clearly and, and this is like stuff that I think everybody across there, right? You're talking about a guy who's leading from a place of ego, who's barking orders, who will not have his words questioned. What is it about that kind of figure that is appealing to people, right? Who be, because it is like you I mean he stated it. He says, I prefer a strong leader. And his definition of strong leader is Putin and Kim. I mean, he said it. I'm not putting words in his mouth. He thinks they're strong leaders. But they're dictators. They're despots. They're what you fought against in your life. So how do you look at that? I think one of the things that I look at is, first of all, this is a, it's a, a situation where you've got, you've got a, a reality TV show going on, right? Yes. And it's happening all the time. The thing is, when I look at what's happening, well, for instance, let's take what what happened in Iraq with ISIS and Syria. This was complete decentralized command. And for the first time in a long time, the US military got told, hey, there's a problem. It's ISIS. Go get it solved. And General Mattis and the rest of the the rest of the military said, okay, what do you how do you want us to do it? And the orders were, I want you to go handle the problem. This is decentralized command. It was beautiful and it worked very, very well. You love decentralized command. You talk about it on the podcast a lot. I understand that. And, and, you know, this is one of those things where I had been asked during, during the Barack Obama years, people started talking about, well, how do you handle this situation? How do you handle ISIS when it's, when it's an ideology and these people are suicidal and they don't care if they live or die and, and they're starting to starting to take real estate. This is horrible. What are we going to do? We can't fight it. And I actually said multiple times in multiple interviews, you, this is, I said, if you take two Marine Corps second lieutenants coming out of the basic school and you said, Hey, this is your mission. You got to go handle it. They'd come up with a plan in a half an hour and it'd be a pretty good plan. But 
that didn't happen. No one said to the military, hey, go handle this problem. So when Trump got into office, Trump said, hey, go handle that problem. And the U.S. military said, cool, we'll go handle it. And by the way, the U.S. military handled it in large part by working with Iraqi forces. The Iraqi forces did an incredible job comparatively to the way they had fought in the past. There was there was massive air support from U.S. and coalition forces, so no doubt. But guess who was getting killed? It was, it was Iraqi soldiers that were getting killed, that were fighting and doing their best to win back their country. And by the way, it was so bad that there was times, I was talking to some friends of mine that were, were, that were there during the push through Mosul, and in the first few days of battle, they were thinking, we're going to run out of Iraqi soldiers. We, we're gonna, they're all going to be wounded or killed. And, to, and this was amazing to see the Iraqi soldiers said, okay, you know what? We're going to take casualties, but we're going to get this mission done. So that's decentralized command. Um, how I can understand or, or qualify the way that Donald Trump sends out tweets? No, I, I can't. Don't, don't go on Twitter, please. You know, I, I, I get it. Yeah. And I will say this too. There are times when Donald Trump will say something where I guarantee a lot of people go, I'm glad he just said that. You know, I'm glad he just said that. And, and, the, and the other people on the other side are going, I cannot believe he just said that. Yeah. And that's the way it is. So, but um, I guess what I'm really asking you. So I, I get that the that, um, and you know so much more about military. I would never even question a word you said about what happened um, with ISIS. Right? You're an expert, and I'm just a guy on the sidelines. But in terms of the way the guy's leading the national conversation, the leadership style, it is his leadership style to me seems like the opposite of what you've written about in all these books. Yeah, I'd say we we haven't seen a really good presidential candidate that really matches up with the values I've written about in a long time. Who's the last one? Who led in a way that you're like, well, that's, that's the way this should be done. Like, do you think Jesse Ventura did when he was in Minnesota? No, <laughs> no. Um, well, I liked Reagan. You felt he led in a way that made yes. sense. Why? I thought he was an articulate speaker. I thought he was, and I thought he showed emotions when emotions need to be, need to be displayed. I thought that he, I thought he was a good leader. He looked to, uh, yeah, again, a lot of his policies don't work for me, but you're, he looked to experts. There's no doubt he looked to experts and asked questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then was, uh, sort of quietly confident in in public. Uh, yeah. For me, Bill Clinton was, uh, unfortunately, he, you know, his personal behavior was despicable. But um, for me, his intellect was so great. And he, too, was a searching leader. As a, as a political leader, he was constantly trying to find the better answer. And that's what I look for, is someone who's not so, everything you're talking about, is someone who's not so sure of their own position that they're not, you know, that they're willing to sort of take on... Yeah, and then the weird, the weird dichotomy to that is you see Trump say some crazy, you know, statement that's way far in one direction, and then he'll back off that direction multiple times. So, I mean, it, it was, hey, we're pulling out of everyone out of Syria immediately. Oh, guess what? We're still there. You know, so so whether that's the way he's 
whether that's kind of what got reinforced throughout his life is to make these statements, get some attention to it, and then be use that from a position of negotiation. Maybe that's what he does, and maybe it's offensive, and and he doesn't really, but it's worked for him, and so he's okay with it. And and so you're you're not worried that we're trending towards authoritarianism in this country. And if we were, you would do so. If you thought that were the case. You'd strap it on and get and you'd stop. Yeah, it. I'm so not worried about us trending towards authoritarianism in this country. In fact, if you were going to trend towards authoritarianism, it would be people that wanted the government to be more empowered. In my opinion, right? right? I don't want the government to have massive power. I don't want that. And and again, this is what's you know when you grow up and you're into hardcore music and and you listen to punk rock and rock and roll and you think, oh well. I don't like authority. So if I don't like authority, I, I must be on this side over here. And then you grow up and you think to yourself, well, wait a second. If I actually don't want the government, if I want the government to control as little as possible, well, then I, I actually end up on the other side of the spectrum. It's an interesting dichotomy that I think comes it, out. It, no, it is. It's, it, this is, I mean, I've read a lot of libertarian philosophy to try to understand going all the way back to John Locke, you know, capital L liberal, which was what libertarianism came from to try to sort of understand how to synthesize these ideas. Uh, but for, and, and, and this leads to a question I, I had for you too, Jocko, which is like, how is it possible to bridge this cultural gap, right? Because I agree with you um, about freedom. Um, I want individuals to be as free as humanly possible, but I really also value the freedom of the press, right? And I hate what I see as our, as certain structural norms of democracy getting, um, getting slightly sort of diminished, like the way in which the president goes after freedom of the press. And you don't even have to talk about what you see there, but what I'm interested in is how do you think we reinforce what's common, the commonality in all of us, right? Like you have a big tent that listens to your podcast. I'm sure there's a lot of people who watch my show who disagree with my politics. But there's so much tension and anger. As a, as a leader, how do you think we bridge it and start to feel like I'm a unified group of people again? Does it matter? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, I work with companies all over the country. And, and actually all over the world. Uh, we do a decent amount of international business, but the vast majority, 95%, is here in America. And it's all over the country. It is, and it's every industry. It's financial industry, it's construction companies, it's gas oil companies, it's pharmaceutical companies. It's, it's literally the entire spectrum of, of industries that there are. And when you go out to... North Dakota, or you go out to Minnesota, or you go out to New Jersey, or and you start talking to the people that are working, the people that are working for a living, they don't care about this fringe stuff. And I, I had this conversation with Ben Ben Shapiro because you know Ben Shapiro is talking that the, the, the nation is so completely divided, and I said Ben, you live in what you live at at you know, point blank. Right. I mean, you say his world. name and of course I immediately am like, I hate that fucking guy. Right, right, right. That's the pro, right? But right. you're saying he and I are living in a reality that's disconnected yes. from the reality. Yes. And so when, when you go out and talk to it, it, a, a, a guy, a lineman 
in in North Carolina, which is lineman, yeah, right, right. And he's like, oh, guess what? Yeah. He's you know, you talk to him about. He guess what he's concerned about? He wants to, you know, get promoted. He wants to do a good job. He wants to make sure he's providing good service for his people. That's that's so so there's so that's what I look at. And the biggest thing that I look at is, I think you can learn. I think people can come to their own conclusions. And 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 one thing, it's this is this is, goes back to leadership. If I want you to do something, what I don't want to do is bark it at you, right? right. I, if I bark it at you, well, then you 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 don't really accept the idea. So whether you're on the left or you're on the right, and you start barking at the other team, they're stop. They don't listen to you. You know, I don't talk about politics a lot on my podcast. Why is that? Well, because I'm talking about things that actually matter. And if you listen. And you understand, you understand sacrifices that were made. You understand the way, the, the hard work that people do to, to achieve the freedoms that we have. You'll say, you know what? When I look at the world, I'll look at it a little bit differently because you'll understand history better. Whereas if I was to just bark at people about what my beliefs were, yeah. it's like, hey, you know what? You can figure out what my beliefs are. I can tell you what they are. That's fine. But I'm not going to bark them at you. And and you know what? I think of my beliefs. I don't think that my beliefs should be your beliefs. And and just like I said, I don't want yes men working for me in in my platoon. I don't want to have a one country where or I don't want to be around people that just everyone agrees with what I'm saying. Because in between what you think and what Ben Shapiro thinks, there's a, a place where, guess what? A normal person can say, oh, that's cool. I can live that. I can live that life. And I'm okay with that. So I think what we have to do is stop digging in into our positions and stop. It's it's kind of an arrogant thing to be. It's 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 arrogant for me to say, hey, this program, this government program would never work. Okay, well, well, actually, why don't you tell me how you think it could be implemented and maybe I could offer you some suggestions on that would improve that government program. I mean, if the dialogue could go to that place, it'd be great. I mean, this is what, and I, I do find for me, proximity really helps. Like we were talking before we started about Corolla. Now, Adam and I have, Adam and I are friends. Like we talk, we text each other. We've spent, whenever we do one another's podcast, we spend time away from it. We hang out like, we see so much of the world in the political way differently, and yet the proximity, the fact that we're actually able to exchange ideas, just turns the fucking volume down. Yeah, and maybe at some point you could concede that there's some little fraction of an idea that Adam has that you say, you know what, that's right. probably a pretty well, good point. Well, yeah. And I'm sure sometimes he listens to you and says, you know what, that's not a bad idea. Well, yeah, well, that, what I was going to say is what happens then is you take it away from... First of all, it stops being as hot. And also you understand, as soon as you understand um, with some empathy the intention, he, Adam's not looking to hurt anybody. In fact, this is his idea of how to help more people. And I'm certainly not trying to hurt anybody. It's my, these are my thoughts on what would make um, things better for more people than currently. And, and it's, if we could get to a place... But why is it so hard? I'm just asking as a leader, why is it so hard now to get to that to get to that place? Why is it so hard for us to just talk and understand that? It, and, and I think for me, I think part of it is that like the culture that's coming out of the White House is so hot that it's difficult. But what but what do you see? How do you see it? Why is it so hard? 
Well, when we walk around thinking that we know more than we do, then it's really easy for us to dig in and reject other people's ideas, as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I have some ideas. I have some concepts that I think I, I have some historical references that make sense to me. Oh, but you have some different historical references. Cool. Why don't you fill me in on those? And maybe we could figure out how to run this thing. So we end up with people, a lot of barking, a lot of barking dogs. And guess what happens when one bark barks? When one dog barks, everybody, every dog the other starts dog barking. starts to bark. And then we, we end up with all the dogs barking. And that's what happens. So I, that's, I, I don't, you know, there's another thing I've been, another concept I've been talking about from a leadership perspective. And as you know, I'm a jujitsu player. And, and one thing that when you're, when, the better you get at jujitsu, the less you worry about things that don't matter. And, and so you know, somebody will be grabbing your arm in this particular way. But if, if you know jujitsu, you think, oh, he's grabbing my arm, but that doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about it. Now, the, the someone that doesn't know jujitsu, they grab their arm and they freak out about that and they focus on that and then they get choked from some other direction. So as a leader, you have to really start to learn to figure out what's important, what's not important. And you have to say, oh, you know what? There's some noise about this thing over here, but it's not really going to affect us. I am actually going to just let the, let the troops kind of kind of complain about that a little bit because it's not that big of a deal. And then, then all of a sudden you hear the troops complain about something else that actually matters. And now you have to sit them down and say, hey, guys, let me tell you what's going on here. And let me tell you why this is happening. Because this is going in this direction for this reason. You guys need to understand that. If I'm not explaining to you well enough, you please ask me the questions. So that's what happens, I think, you know, with, with politics. You know, I had a guy um, jump on one of these Q&As. Yeah. And he, and he was ready for me on the Reddit Q&A, and as soon as I went on the Reddit Q&A, this massive post came on that was pre-written in Word, and it was, it was, and this was a while ago, this was maybe within two or three months of Trump being elected, and it was, it was all the bullet points about this, and the catastrophe, and the finance, and the Russian, and the, it was the whole thing, and it's a big thing, and, and I wrote back, America is stronger than one man. And that's the truth. The truth of the matter is America is stronger than one man. And the, and America, if Hillary Clinton would have won, I would have been saying the same thing to everyone that was freaking out about that. I would have said, America is stronger than one woman. It's okay. We've got this huge, we've got these massive checks and balances in place. It's, it's, we're not, we're not going to fall apart because of one person. We could impeach we could, or we could just vote him out or we could vote him in again. And, and it's okay. We're not going to, it's not going to, it's, it's okay. And so we have to learn what to worry about. Now I have to be a little bit careful about this because sometimes I don't even pay enough attention. And, and I got a little bit, and I know you were t telling me that you listened to the podcast that I did with Jordan Peterson yes. talking about the, the Gulag archipelago, but that, that little discussion we had about that word of Kulak, which was you in the, in the beginning, that word meant like a really bad landowner that abused people and took their money and treated them like crap. And that's what a kulak was. And when the communists first took over, it's like, okay, the kulaks are going down. They were landowners. They abused the working class. But it, you fast forward that and then kulak became, well, it was anyone that owned any property. And then it was anyone that owned any property or anyone that was related to anyone that owned any property. And eventually a kulak was anyone that was against anything that I thought. And so I, I have to be careful that I think we have to be careful if we start taking something and where that happens now, I think is a lot with words that get thrown out that make everyone back off. And all of a sudden you can't say something because you'll get called this or you'll get called that. And so we have to be careful. 
We know when someone says Trump is literally Hitler, right? Like, no, no, actually, he's not. He's not literally Hitler. You might not like him. He might have some some policies that you don't agree with. But let's not let's not start applying things. On the other hand, so I agree, he's not Hitler. Let's just let's stipulate to the fact that he's not Hitler. On the other hand, and I and I want to have three more things I want to ask you before we stop. So I'm going to get off of this subject. But thank you. But it's fair to say. Is it fair to say, though, if you've read the bunch of stuff, is it fair to say, you know, there were these certain things that happened in the Weimar Republic early on. There were certain erosions in the norms. I can point you to where in the books about that time period. I'm a little concerned that certain of these things are happening now. How do we want to process it? How do we want to talk about it? I mean, that to me seems like a fair conversation. Yeah, cool. Let's let's take a look at those things. I'm fine with that. Right. That's that's that's, that's no fact. As far as saying, look, we're we're not because we're clearly not in the Weimar Republic now. That's yeah. not happening, right? Yeah. On the other hand, people like me can see certain things and go, eh, some of this language is echoing some of that language, and um, it concerns me. Yeah, and, and and there's also people that will look at the other side and say, hey, some of the language that's being used on the yeah, other it's like, side, yeah, is sure, it reminds them of Russia. Yeah, some hey, of them will say reminds them. You know, let's let's start throwing the seventy percent tax rate around people. That's that's pretty scary. Yeah. By the way, as a liberal Democrat, I hated when I, people talked about the seventy-five. Or I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like right, like you said. Let's just let's look at what's actually reasonable and possible. Right. All right. So uh, I want to talk about fear for just a couple minutes, because in in my world um, of to create, you know, which you're in too. I mean, you're a, a real right, like you're a, a really good writer and a, a writer whose words are read by millions of people. So you know how scary it is to people to write uh, to because. I said a thing the other day that got quoted a lot where I, I said I was on a Rich Roll's podcast or something and I said, it's much easier to say I don't have the time to do this, to try this, than it is to say I'm scared I'm not going to be good enough at it and I'm going to be made fun of, right? And I, I think part of it is when I see a finished movie, when I was young and I would see a finished movie, it looked so perfect. I didn't understand that that director or that writer had days where they felt like a failure, where they felt like there was no way for it to work. And I'm wondering, do you ever feel like it's hard? Do you ever have days where it's like, man, I'm, I feel like I'm not good at this, or I feel like this is beyond my capability. And, and then how do you press on? Like you looking at a finished movie and thinking about those expectations of what something should look like, for me, and this this is one of those statements that it, there's definite dichotomy to this, but I don't care. I, I don't care. I, I'm I'm awesome. not I'm not That's looking. Awesome. I'm not saying, hey, I really hope that someone likes what I'm writing right now. I I don't care. When I do a podcast, and and as you know, my podcast can be as dark as you can possibly get. I mean, it is. They can be absolutely <laughs> yes. talk about the most horrible things. And as I'm putting those podcasts together. I'm not thinking, wow, I, I hope people really enjoy this. I hope I hope they really love this. I hope they get joy from this. They're not going to get any joy from it. They might learn from it. So I'm not creating things for the purpose of consumption, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I hope this is, I hope you like this. When I'm writing, I'm not saying I hope people love this. I'm writing something that means something to me. Now, the dichotomy to that is when I'm putting together a podcast, I'm going to to the nth degree to make sure that I understand what I'm saying, that I'm going to be able to articulate it in a clear way. And I'm doing that 
Yes, and, and you could say I'm doing that for the audience, but I'm actually doing it for me. I'm actually doing it because I truly want to understand things better. When I write something, I want it to be written in a way that is as clear as I can possibly write it and has as much meaning as I can possibly give it. And, you know, some people are might not like it, and that's okay with me. I'm, I'm, I do what I think is the right thing to do from my perspective. And so if you expect every page that you turn out, if you expect every word that you write is going to be awesome, it's not. That's not a good expectation to have. You're going to have to write it and rewrite it. I was watching a, I was watching a thing the other day on a musician, a guy by the name of the, the White Buffalo. And, you know, I, I have a little band we play. And, you know, we, we almost never play the same song twice. We just jam and we play riffs and we rip a 12-minute song and it's great and we love it and we never play it again. And occasionally, you know, we'll say, oh, we should, we should do that again and we'll, we'll start to put together a little bit and then we'll f- get stuck on or go off in some other direction. And I was watching this, this YouTube documentary, whatever, eight-minute documentary, and it was showing the amount of effort that this band was putting in to making a a song, a song, the amount of takes he did to get his vocals right. The, it was just, it was so crazy. And I I said to myself, well, yeah, that's what it takes. And if you think you're going to be in a, and you're going to riff out a song and it's going to be the first time you play it, we'd have to play one of those songs 500, 500 times. No kidding, 500 times before you can go into the studio. And now everyone, you know, everyone knows Black Sabbath went in on their first album and they did it in eight hours. It was like one take. That's cool. Like you're a genius and that's the way it's going to happen. If you're that lucky, great. But every other mortal human is going to have to actually work. And that's what's going to happen with your writing. And that's the way you're going to have to go through life. Yeah. Also, Tony Iommi was thinking about those riffs for a really yeah. long time. Yeah. Those guys played a lot together. Yeah. Geezer Butler and Bill Ward were a unit yeah. that worked. A, they didn't just walk into the fucking no, studio. No. Yeah. Like they were preparing for that for a long time before that magical, insane right. thing right. happened. I mean, I was on the road with Metallica for a while when I was a kid and, you know, I would watch every, you'd go to those shows and it seemed like a miracle, but every sound check was an hour and a half of them going through those songs and working it. Yeah. It's clear. Yeah. Do you ever get scared of anything, Jocko? Does anything scare you in the world? Do Or do you just not even allow it to happen? You know, whether it's a kid being out late at night, like does anything worry oh, you? Uh, yeah, I guess you worry about your kids. You know, I've got four kids. Yeah. Do I worry about my kids? Sure. I don't want my kids. Don't want anything bad to happen to my kids. But, you know. What do you do with those thoughts? Because that's something you can't control sometimes. So how do you, because you talk about this a lot, I, and I, I think people need it. So wh- the things, it's, it's, it's easy to say, don't worry about what you can't control. How do you practice that? Well, it's, it's what you can't control. First of all, you can control a lot more than you think. And then how do you mitigate the risks that are there? So there's things that you, you can't, you think you can't control. And this, this is another thing that ties back to extreme ownership is there's things that you don't think you can control, but you actually can. And so the classic example I give is, oh, the mission got canceled because bad weather came in and the helicopters couldn't fly us. Okay. Well, no one, we all know we can't control the weather, right? Okay. So what was the contingency plan? You got to at least plan for it. Maybe we should have vehicles on standby. We, maybe we should have moved to a forward operating base that's a little bit closer to the target where we could drive or patrol if we had to. So with fear, same thing. There's a lot of things you can actually control. What are you afraid of? 
okay, well, you're afraid that you're not going to do well when you go into this board meeting. Okay, well, how much did you prepare? Did you prepare enough? If you prepared enough and you know what you the rule you make yourself is that you're going to talk about what you actually know. And if you get asked something that you don't know, you're going to say, I'm not sure the answer to that. I'll find out and get back with you. Then you roll into that board meeting and you do the best you can. If it's a job interview, same thing. You got the job interview because they see... They see that you have potential. You don't have to go in there and try and BS them. You go in there and you say, hey, this is who I am. These are the things I care about. This is the job I can do for you. Oh, you have a question for me about something I don't know anything about? I'm not sure the answer, but I know where I can find that answer and I'll get back to you and let you know. So you can you can prepare for a lot more to overcome your fear. And then once you do that, you mitigate the risk as much as you can. And then you focus on the things that you actually can control. But there are going to be some things you can't control. When you're in Iraq and you're driving down the street, there's a possibility that the enemy put an IED in the road four days ago and they're going to blow it up on you and you're going to die or some of your teammates are going to die. And so what do you do? You mitigate the risk to the best of your ability. You try and gather intel about when routes are getting IED'd. You try and follow down when routes have been cleared. You try and use those roads. But sometimes you're going to do things that you you had to do and you did all the mitigation. And when you're out there, you can still get hit by an IED. You can still get blown up. You can still lose some of your guys. If you sit around and worry about that, you are not, you're not going to be focused on what you should be focused on, which is doing a good job. Last question. How did you train yourself to not focus on that? This, that's the thing that most people, right? Every, I think people know they shouldn't allow that voice to happen. And in your books, you talk about willing it away. But if you could just do a, a minute or so on, or as much as you want, on the actual, like the process by which you discipline yourself to not go down those roads. Like you prepare, everything you said, I agree with. I agree with every word you just said, right? Mitigating, taking every step, preparing. But then... When the fear voice still shows up, how uh, of the thing you can't control, how have you trained yourself to not let the anxiety creep in? So the last few years I was in the SEAL teams, I was running the SEAL training, but not, not the SEAL training where guys are carrying boats on their head and the, the basic training that no, no one cares about that. It's not that big of a deal. The training that I was running was when you're learning the tactics of being a SEAL, we would go through great lengths to make the training as realistic as possible. It would be total mayhem. We had special effects. We had actors and actresses. We had fake blood and munition and, and paintball and opposing force role players. It would be total mayhem. And sometimes in those situations the leadership of a platoon or of a task unit would get overwhelmed or they'd get distracted or they'd get into the weeds on some minutia problem that would draw them in so tightly that they weren't paying attention to everything that was going on. And you'd see this situation unfold and it would create what I would call at the time a leadership vacuum, meaning no one is stepping up and taking charge. The things are just happening. And what makes it hard to recognize is when it's happening, there's there's a vacuum. And so you don't see what's not there. And so the guys in the platoon are kind of waiting for something to happen, but nothing's happening. And so they just kind of continue doing what they're doing, which is not good because it has no direction because no one's making any calls. And so I would teach these younger guys, the, the younger leaders, and say, hey, listen, when, when there's a leadership vacuum, when there's no call being made, what you need to do is step up and make a decision and make a call. So 
this actually happens in your head. This actually happens in your head where things are unfolding around you and you either get distracted or you get caught up in some little minutia and you're no longer making decisions. You're not even controlling what's happening. And so the first thing you have to do is learn to recognize when that's occurring. The vacuum that lets the bad thoughts in. Yes. The, you have to that's recognize yeah. that vacuum. You have to recognize that you're not running the show right now. And when you and, and, and the, how do you recognize that? Well, it's because you're looking around and you're going, you're saying to yourself, things aren't happening the way I actually want them to happen. They're not happening that way. Who's going to change it? The person that's going to change it is you. You're the one that has to step up and change it. And I talk about detachment a lot and not from a, a meditation because I know you're a, a meditation guy. I've never really meditated in any, in any proper way before other than jujitsu and surfing and guitar. But you have to be able to detach and step back and observe what's happening almost from an out-of-body position, an out-of-body position where you're observing yourself as if you're watching yourself in a video game or you're watching yourself on a screen so that you can see what's unfolding around you. How do you learn to do that? The way I learned to do it was recognizing signs that I had of, oh, my, I, I'm breathing hard. My, my fists are clenched. I'm, 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 breathe, my, my, I'm breathing short. I'm looking around. Wait a second. If I'm looking around that much, that means I'm trying to process what's happening. That means I don't know what's happening. That means I need to take a step back. So awesome. then take a step back, relax, look around, take a leadership position inside your own mind and lead yourself in the direction that you want to go. Fantastic. Jocko, you're an inspiration, man. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know you, having you on the show. You killed it on the show, by the way. Just <laughs> kicked ass on Billions. Uh, and um, I played a caricature of myself. It, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it was yeah. a great thing, yes. I thought I thought you guys, I, I had no idea what, what I was walking into, and I thought, I thought you guys were going to have me as a, as a leadership consultant. We'd send you the page or whatever. No, no, no. I didn't get him. Well, yes, eventually you did. But no, no. When I first, I said, oh, they probably want me to go in and talk to some company. Oh, that's so funny. And I didn't know anything about Billions at this point. Yeah. And so I thought they're probably bringing me in. And then I saw the script. I go, oh, they just want to play a caricature of Jocko. Cool. I can do this. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, you killed it. Yeah. You did great. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. But, um, but man, th thanks. I, I, I think you do so much good for people. Your podcast is required listening for me. And as dark as it gets... You know, for someone like me, every time I hear stories of the kind of sacrifice that you talk about, not about yourself, you don't self-aggrandize, it reminds me, as I told you when I went to the Supreme Court the other day, it just reminds me of the best of what America is and the best of what we can be. And you pull no punches on the podcast, and I, I love that too. So people should listen to his podcast, check out his books. Um, they're incredibly useful. Levine who has the greatest bullshit detector of anybody I know, my creative partner, all he does, all he does is give out the leadership manual to like everybody he meets. And uh, so go get that too. You can find Jocko on social media. He's active on there under his own name on, on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you next time.